Uh, we're beginning a new series today as we think about uh, our, our, this will bring us to the end of the year, I think, Encountering Jesus, a, a new series on the life of Jesus. We just finished, of course, our series on the elementary doctrine, the first principles of Christianity, and sort of a, as, a, as a, not a parallel, a companion series Uh, Getting to know who Jesus was. We're going to be looking at selected meetings with Jesus. We're not going to be going through every story in the Gospels. Uh, Usually, but not always, we're going to be looking at meetings that individuals had with Jesus, different encounters that people had. Sometimes it'll be groups, but most of these will be individual encounters. Some of these will be centered around a miracle. Some of them will be centered around a teaching. Some of them will be centered around uh, a question or a conflict, right? We're going to have a variety as we go through. The point is to bring us to a deeper understanding of Jesus, the person. Some of it will be doctrinal. That's unavoidable because a lot of what Jesus did was teaching. That was one of his main purposes. But a lot of it, I hope, will be relational. What did Jesus care about? How did he treat people? What did he prioritize? What did he, what did he emphasize? How did he act in his life? Essentially, who was Jesus? We're thinking about being disciples, of course. One of the things of, of being a disciple is becoming like the master. So who is Jesus? If we're going to be like Jesus, what do we need to know? We need to know who he was. And as we think about having this relational aspect of Christianity... Who is Jesus? Who do we have this relationship with? Who is our Savior? Who is this person that we follow? And so we're going to go over the next, like say, probably 13 or 14 weeks into some of these stories. Encounters that people had with Jesus. And of course, thinking about us encountering Jesus and who he was. Now, the biblical story of Jesus has a rather large gap. This was alluded to, uh, I think Lee alluded to this, he didn't really go into it, but a rather large gap in the gospel narratives. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all generally follow the same trajectory, not entirely. There's some differences between them. But the vast majority of the gospel narratives focus on the last three years of Jesus' life. His, this is called his ministry. Uh, he begins his ministry. It's the last three years of his life leading up to the crucifixion. Outside of his ministry, the three years of his ministry, most of the remaining texts in the Gospels emphasizes his supernatural prophesied birth. His amazing birth, the last three years of his life. And so the question for us, what about the middle 30 years? We have 30 years, the bulk of his earthly life, that we don't have very much about. It's just the Bible narrative does not focus on it for reasons that we'll talk about. But if we're thinking about talking about who Jesus was, there are apocryphal accounts, and and we should consider them this way, that are uninspired, of Jesus as a boy, or Jesus as a teenager, or Jesus interacting before his ministry. I'm going to caution you very strongly, those are not inspired. Those are made up way later after the fact. But if we want to consider the humanity of Jesus, it, it might be good to know a little bit what little there is to know about the 30 years of his life before his ministry, who he was for the majority of his life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today as we think about encountering Jesus. Who was Jesus before his ministry? First, we should note that it doesn't seem like Jesus did many, if any, and I would go so far as to say he didn't do any. You could, you could argue about this if you wanted to. We have to be careful about uh, how we interpret the text here. At the very minimum, he didn't do very many miracles before his, his baptism. Mark 6, 1 through 6, this is parallel in Matthew 13. One of the things we're going to see a lot in this series of sermons is I'm going to have, I usually just have the text up. I'm going to have a lot like this. Uh, 
where there's a parenthetical uh, because we're going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and we're going to have a lot of stories that are mushed together. Uh, in this particular case, it didn't matter very much. But in some cases, I'm going to try a little bit of a different thing where I will be blending the narrative of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I will be blending them together. And I'll, I'll delineate. You'll have different colors of text for the different Gospels. But putting together a complete picture of these various encounters of Jesus. In this one, it didn't matter. Matthew, 6, uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 6 are basically identical in the different Gospels. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, and this is the thing that I want to note in this text, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this Carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? Again, remember, he's in his hometown. This is where he grew up. This is where he spent most of his life. He comes back. He's doing these miracles. He has this, has this teaching. And their reaction is not, oh yeah, that's Jesus. He's been doing that the whole time. Oh yeah, that's Jesus. You know, he, he was the guy, he, he healed so-and-so 20 years ago. Or, or so-and-so was lost in the woods and Jesus just knew where he was. Or, you know, whatever you want to put in there. The reaction of the people who grew up with Jesus, who have spent 30 years with Jesus, is, whoa, what, what is happening with this guy? He's never done this before. This is the carpenter. This is the, the guy that made my table. This is the guy that fixed my door. Whatever you want to put in there. Where did he get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? They took offense at him. You think you're better than us? That's almost certainly what they're thinking here. You grew up with us. You're one of us. And now you come back and you're teaching all this stuff, probably about the kingdom of God and about sin and about the need to repent. You know, all the same stuff he taught everywhere else. You think you're so much better than us? You're just one of us, man. You're just, you know, I went to school with you. I, I helped you out with your sheep. I don't know whatever you want to put in there. Probably didn't have sheep, actually. And Jesus said to him or them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Presumably if Jesus had been doing miracles for the last 30 years, they would not have reacted this way. And not only the miracles, but the teaching. When they heard, they were astonished. They were astonished, not just at the miraculous power, but at the words that he was saying, the teaching. What is this wisdom given to him? Which means we can infer a couple of things. Number one, he didn't grow up doing a bunch of miracles. And number two, he didn't grow up as a teacher, as this great articulate philosopher of, of religion. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things. That word if is doing a lot of work in this sentence. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. He's hanging out with his brothers and his brothers are basically saying what? You think you're so great. You think you're so awesome. Show the world, man. If you're doing these things, then let it be obvious. But his brothers don't believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now there's a little bit of interesting thing in the story, because he is immediately about to go to Galilee, he just didn't want to go with his brothers. And maybe he changed his mind. But this idea that it, my time has not yet come, this is going to be the main theme of, of one of the main themes of this idea of Jesus before his ministry, that Jesus spent a lot of time not involved in this work. He wasn't teaching. He wasn't doing miracles. His time had not yet come. He, he was biding his time. We keep reading in John 7, after his brothers had gone up, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. In the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, therefore saying, how is it that this man has learning when he never studied? Now, we're going to talk about the incident in the temple in, in just a bit. But what is obvious is that Jesus did not spend his time around the various religious teachers. He did not spend the first 30 years of his life engaged in academic pursuit engaged with the various sects of different teaching in Israel. Nobody knows this guy. Who is this guy? He's, he's never been involved in the learning. How does he know this stuff? And we see the dichotomy. Some said he's a good man. Others, he's leading people astray. And where you fall on that line, is he a good man or is he leading people astray? Fundamentally, that question depends upon your answer to the question, is he God? Because if he's not God, the people who say he's leading them astray are definitely right. He's misleading people if he's not God. He's, he's leading them into something false, something untrue. And yet the, 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 the tension, the struggle for those who would not believe in his divinity, he is a good man. He's healing. He's helping. He has this great teaching. How do we reconcile this? That was their main struggle. John 6, 2 through 11. This is, of course, the wedding at Cana. There are six stone water jars uh, for the Jewish rites. There's no, they've run out of wine. Uh, each holding 30, 20 or 30 gallons, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. When they took it, uh, so they took it, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants knew who, the draw, who had drawn the water. Uh, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and people have drunk freely then the poor wine, but you have kept the good until now. This, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus did not manifest his glory until the proper time. Didn't that what he said? My time has not yet come. He says, I, my guess is that's how he felt for the majority of his life on earth. I'm just a carpenter. I'm doing the things that carpenters do. I'm spending my time with my, my brothers and sisters and, and I have a family and, and I, I'm making money and I'm building a house and I'm helping people with their problems and you just regular life stuff. Now, in his ministry, he begins to manifest. He's not just a normal dude. He is glorious. Manifesting his glory in these signs. And yet the interesting thing, as we go back to the first part of this wedding, John 2, 1 through 5, the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus went to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We see the same idea. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
despite the fact that he's not done miracles up until now, his brothers didn't see anything, at least when they were growing up, right? His brothers didn't believe that he was the son of God. Uh, despite all of this, his mother still comes to him. Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus' interaction with her, I think, indicates this point that we're making. What do you expect me to do about it? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And yet, his hour is very fast approaching. And so Jesus does the miracle. While Jesus had been biding his time, waiting and living a normal life, Mary knew about his potential power. Mary knew that something special was going on with Jesus. How did Mary know that this guy, Jesus, who had lived 30 years on earth, relatively normal guy, not doing all this great teaching, not doing all these miracles. Of course, we remember that Mary had some insight. We talked about the birth, the supernatural birth. Mary being told by the angels, hey, your son, he's going to save the people from their sins. Your son, he's going to be of the Holy Spirit. Your son, he's going to be different. He's going to be special. He's going to be unique. And this hasn't manifested in the 30 years. I wonder when Mary was thinking, of course, he's, he's one and then he's two and he's learning to walk and he's spitting up like all babies do and he's crying in his crib and, and all of this now they're having to teach him to learn how to talk and teaching him to use utensils. Oh man, that was a struggle teaching our kids to use utensils instead of their hands. And, and he's, they're having to teach him how to, all the stuff of life. We see one instance, one good, clear story of the life of Jesus prior to his ministry, where Mary, I think, is reminded this is not a normal dude. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, supposing him to be Obviously, they're caravanning. They're with a group. And, you know, we did this in, uh, we caravaned, caravaned in New Mexico with all the different people that went to New Mexico. You're shuffling kids about. Kids spend some time in another car. Presumably, they did the same thing, right? The kids, oh, I'm going to go with my cousins or I'm going to go with wherever. Uh, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances and they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The incredible dichotomy on display in the story. They're amazed at his answers, his understanding. And yet he's still listening and asking questions. The first thing they find doing is listening and asking questions. And as they're having this dialogue, presumably Jesus and the teachers in the temple, he's listening, he's asking them questions. They're talking to him about things. He's making comments, as in any setting of Bible study would happen, right? They're not studying the New Testament, but studying the, the Torah, the old law. They're having this discussion about things. And they're amazed at his understanding and his answers. We keep reading. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said, Why were you looking for me? Very evocative of his question at the wedding in Cana. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Treasured up all these things in her heart until when? When did that come out? First of all, I think, 
the wedding at Cana. Jesus, they have no wine. Well, why are you asking me? What does this have to do with me? Because Mary remembers. Mary knows. Mary has treasured up that this son of hers is not normal. This son of hers, though he has manifested normal life up until now, is full of glory. He's full of grace and truth, what John says in John chapter 1. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. A couple of things to note. The Son of God was not exempt from submission to parents. Looking at you guys over here. If Jesus was submissive to his parents, what does that say about the rest of us? A couple other things to note about this. The word increased. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature means what? He didn't start out with all knowledge. He didn't start out with all wisdom. He didn't come out of the womb just knowing all the things he needed to know. There was a progression, a growth, a learning as Jesus grew and developed into the man that he needed to be. Now, it's clear that Jesus had some idea of the work that he would do. I'm very curious. This is unanswerable. I'm very curious when this awareness came to him. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the first time. I don't know. But when this awareness, I need to be in my father's house, the, the split between the heavenly father and the earthly father, right? That dichotomy. Jesus is obviously very in tune with that, right? I have Joseph, but I need to be in my father's house. That is the temple. So Jesus had some knowledge of what would be taking place, the things that he would have to do, some insight into this. Yet it's also clear that Jesus grew up as any child would, learning and growing and submitting to authority. And so as we conclude our lesson for today, the things that I want us to understand, we're thinking about who Jesus was. For a, lar a large part of his life, he was just like you and me. Had to deal with sibling rivalries and disputes. His brothers didn't believe him at first. He had a lot of brothers and sisters, right? We, I think it lists four brothers. And then it says also his sisters are with us. Don't you think they got into arguments and disputes and sibling rivalries and pushing and shoving? And all the stuff that siblings do. Jesus had to deal with that. Jesus was expected to submit to imperfect parents. He went with them and submitted to their authority. Maybe we don't like our parents. Maybe our parents make mistakes. Maybe our parents are, are imperfect. Not maybe. Of course they are. Our parents are imperfect. And yet Jesus still demonstrates submission to imperfect parents. Jesus had to work for a living. The first thing that people say when he comes back to his hometown, he starts teaching and doing miracles. Wait a minute. Isn't this the carpenter? Of course, growing up, the carpenter's son that's what uh, Matthew says. This is this, the carpenter's son. Joseph, the carpenter. Jesus, the carpenter. For 30 years. 30 years. Just living a normal life. Building houses. Fixing problems. Constructing furniture. Why? To provide food and shelter. Like everybody else in life. Got to make money to eat. Got to make money to pay for, for shelter. Got to make money for clothes. All the same stuff. The mundanity of life. And I am a little bit. I'm not a little bit. I'm very encouraged. I don't know. Maybe this is bad attitude. Uh, I don't know. It is encouraging that Jesus knows what it means to deal with an angry customer. What it means to have to pay bills. What it means to have to go to work when you don't feel like it. We think about Jesus as this messianic heavenly figure, which he is, don't get me wrong, 
But Jesus spent the majority of his life dealing with human problems. How many times do you think Jesus hit his thumb with the hammer? Or maybe cut himself with a saw? I don't know. Any number of things that might have happened. Dealing with business associates who cheated him. Who were trying to get every advantage. Jesus had to work and grow up in a family that did not exalt him. He did not grow up the golden child. His family treated him as a normal family. And again, I'm encouraged to think about, he knows what it's like to be in a family that is just a normal family. To deal with the sibling difficulties and the difficulties with parents and the difficulties with, with cousins and the difficulties, all of the things that go along with a family. We all know it. We all know it. And so does he. Jesus had to learn and grow into the man he needed to be. He increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He went back and submitted to his, his parents and authority. I'm encouraged to know that Jesus did not just come out ready-made, ready to do the things that he needed to do. He took some preparation, some time to grow and learn. And so maybe if we are having some struggles in our Christian walk, Jesus understands the need for growth. He understands that once we come out of the water of baptism, we're not just ready to go. It requires some education and some learning and some, some training. Jesus empathizes with that. Put most succinctly, we have that, that ad campaign. They've spent so much money on that ad campaign. But it's true. He gets us. He knows what it's like to be a person. And so we'll end with the text that was read for us, beginning of sermon. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we're the children, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Not just the body, that's flesh and blood, but partook of family disputes, partook of business struggles, partook of physical illness, I suspect, partook of all the just blah of life. That through death he might destroy the power of the one, uh, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Even though there's a lot of blah in life, we still all have that fear of death, right? Because this is all we got. This is it. This life. And so we have this fear of death and that drives us to all sorts of sinful things, all sorts of things that rebel against God. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In our story today, we might think of this literally, his literal brothers. But of course this is broader, right? This is us in this room, made like us in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As we pray to God throughout the day, throughout the week. We have temptations, we have struggles, we're praying. The Hebrew writer tells us later, we have an intercessor, a mediator between God and man. Jesus is the high priest. Why? Because he knows what it's like to be us and all the struggles of life that we have. He is able to help us because he knows what we need. 
as we conclude this sermon, we're going to be thinking about in the next few weeks, who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? What makes him worth our devotion? What makes him worth our sacrifice? What makes him worth knowing and, and submitting to? And we begin with this very basic idea. Jesus understands you because he is you. He was you, all of us in this room. And so we submit to someone who is not far off, who is asking us to do things that he himself was not willing to do. When we are asked to submit, we understand that Jesus first submitted. When we're asked to obey, we understand that Jesus first obeyed. When we're asked to change our lives, we understand that Jesus first changed his life from divinity to humanity. And so we offer the invitation to be joined to someone who understands you. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? We're going to sing this in just a minute. That you're approaching, you're coming to somebody who understands your struggles. Come while we stand and sing.